when it comes to to smart manufacturing everyone's nervous that they're behind everyone's nervous that they that they've they've missed the boat or or um not quite sure how to get started and i always tell them you know what start where you are right now welcome to manufacturing happy hour the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers manufacturing happy hour each week we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 92. Today, we're talking all about the acceleration of smart manufacturing adoption. Our guest this week is Jerry Foster, the CTO of Plex Systems, a company that paved the way for business enterprise software in the cloud. Now, if you want to get into specifics, Plex is a smart manufacturing platform. We're talking ERP, it's an MES, that's a manufacturing execution system, or in non-technical terms, it's a digital platform that connects people, systems, machines, and supply chains. Plus, you might have heard some buzz about them recently because they were acquired by Rockwell Automation less than a year ago. Anyway, you're here to get to know Jerry, and we're going to get into all of this and so much more in this episode. First, Jerry's going to tell us how Plex Systems got started. I'm not going to lie, it's probably not the type of startup story you're expecting. Second, Plex recently put out their annual State of Smart Manufacturing report. We'll cover some of the highlights of that report, but Jerry's going to give us even more than that. Jerry is a very, uh, let's say, energetic cornucopia of industrial technology insights. So we'll cover his takes on everything from AI to blockchain's role in manufacturing in this part of the episode. Finally, we talk about what Jerry notices in leaders who don't hesitate when it comes to implementing new technologies, plus sports, pop culture, and more to wrap the interview. If you want to access any of the resources we reference in this episode, you can do that at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 92. That'll take you straight to the show notes page. Or you can also go straight to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash plex, that's P-L-E-X, That'll take you straight to their State of Smart Manufacturing report. Now that you know how to find all of that, I think it's time for us to meet up with Jerry Foster and get into today's interview. We are rolling. Jerry, it's great to have you here on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, great to be here as well. And in the spirit of Manufacturing Happy Hour, you already know the first question. We were having this conversation over a drink. Where would that be? Paint the picture. <laughs> well, this might be a little different than your normal answer, but I don't drink alcohol. I'm a huge fan of pop, and we have a local a drive uh, drive-in uh, by our house, which I absolutely love. So um, we'd probably be having this conversation in a car with an original Frosty Red Beer at the local a drive-in. So... It's funny. We actually just featured a craft uh, craft soda company on this podcast. Really? So it's actually it's actually not as far off as you're <laughs> thinking. We are that's awesome. We are equal opportunity when it comes to beverages, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. <laughs> so, all right, you you and I are having root beer floats right all now. Right. We're having this conversation. So, very candidly, you know, one of the things we do on this show is we try to go beyond the buzzwords. In one minute, if you're having a root beer with someone, how do you personally describe? the concept of smart manufacturing. So for one minute, I'd, I'd say that smart manufacturing is just connecting things. You're connecting machines 
and sensors and software, even people to each other, or maybe to some system or process. And that allows you to transfer data. And transferring data gives you two things. One, it gives you visibility. I can see what is actually going on inside a particular system. I don't have to guess or assume. And that in turn gives me the ability to make intelligent decisions. So I'm a smarter worker or a manager or executive. Um, the second thing that that transfer data allows is it gives a particular component, like maybe a sensor on a controller or a service in the cloud, the ability to analyze that data and make decisions on its own. And in some cases, adjust the behavior accordingly. So we're automating not just repetitive tasks, like everyone's familiar with a robot that picks up a part off a belt and puts it in a, in a bucket, uh, but tasks that used to require human intervention because there was decision-making involved. Um, I remember at the, the forging company where we, where I used to work, um, we used to have workers that at the end of every line would visually inspect a sample of parts out of every bin, right? And then they make quality decisions on the contents of that entire bin based on that sample. But now we have vision systems, an intelligent camera, and machine learning that can analyze every single part coming off the press and reject only the ones that don't conform. So that's an example of what I mean by connecting things. And that, in a nutshell, is how I view um, smart manufacturing. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, collecting data, being able to make decisions off of it, whether it's the person, whether it's, you know, some type of machine learning. Excellent answer. And I like that you brought up the forging company because that's exactly where we want to go here at the start because we want to get to know you a little bit. And what I found so interesting about Plex is that it was born out of a forging company. So tell us about that, right? I feel like I hear about homegrown softwares all the time. That's usually an argument to like get something that's off the shelf. But right. in your case, totally flipped story. It became something that right. became its own software. So tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so it's a it's a it's a long and fun story. I'll kind of give you a maybe a more brief version. So you know, once upon a time, there was an engineer who was hired uh, to work in a forging company in the early '90s. Uh, this is old school forging, axle uh, axle shafts, um, drive shafts, gears, pinions, um, and he was working there. Pretty soon, he became totally fed up with the chaos. Uh, he had so many situations that just frustrated him to no end. Um, for instance, sometimes they'd have to work through the night to, to get a part uh, made that they had uh, uh, had not been able to make correctly. And they'd have to call in a helicopter, which would come in and pick up the parts and fly them down to Detroit in order to get there in time. And so he finally got so fed up, uh, he, worked, he walked into the president's office and he said, I quit. And I'm going to work for a company that's got to act together. And that president, instead of um, being offended, said, okay, you snotty-nosed kids, if, if, kid, if you're so smart, how would you fix it? And this engineer thought, oh, well, maybe I won't quit. Maybe I can do something about this. So he set about designing a computer system to try to control this chaos. Um, but he knew instinctively trying to tackle every single business process that makes a factory tick was, was just too big. So he thought, what's the most important thing that a factory does? What's the main thing? They make parts. That's it. So he started building a system that tracked inventory and production on the shop floor. And that's where he started and it built up from there and, and uh, you know, went to quality and then tooling and gauge control shipping and so on. And, uh, and I know you're thinking, oh, Jerry, it's so cool that you were that engineer. Well, no, nope, that wasn't me, but I was actually hired by that engineer. Um, he hired me and uh, he had gotten to a point where he couldn't um, continue building that system. He needed to re-architect it. And I was one year out of school I wasn't in manufacturing. I didn't know the software he was using. So somehow I bamboozled him into, into hiring me. And uh, we got together and started building that system out into a into a um, MES system and an ERP system that ran that entire company. And the cool thing is, um, in the space of a few short years, that forging company grew tenfold. 
it went from six million to sixty million in just three or four years. Um, and I attribute that to two reasons: one, progressive leadership, and two, um, our homegrown manufacturing software. And uh, we had customers and suppliers that would come into the forging company like, this is awesome. How can I get this? How, how can I get a hold of this? Can I pay you for this? Can I buy this? And finally, we we're like, you know what? <laughs> Maybe we should sell this. Maybe we got something here. And so by that time, we had hired a few more people. So there was five of us. And uh, April Fool's Day, 1995, we broke off from the forging <laughs> company. I don't know why we decided April 1st, but we did and uh, started our own company and uh just continue to grow from there and uh it's been a crazy ride ever since man what a great entrepreneurial story i thought the punchline was going to be you were that engineer i like how <laughs> you, you you brought that in there that's that's great and i love how the people that came into the plant were like hey we want to buy this right yep. it's a great sign that hey you might have a product there right. you know you mentioned hey Plex is a cloud-based MES system. So right. I have another question, right? Plex was the first business enterprise software in the cloud in 2001, which yeah. you know feel, feels very early for the cloud world. Because if, I mean, if you're first, it's early, obviously, right? right. What was it like to make oh, that bet before anyone else was doing that? It, it was crazy. And not just, and, and we didn't just take our on-premise software and, and Put it on a virtual machine we built this natively in the cloud software as a service shared multi-tenant from the ground up like you said in 2001 so there's two things jump out when i when i think of that question you just asked first of all there was no playbook no one had done this before there was no internet to fall back on there was no stack overflow to check to get advice we were flying by the, the seat of our pants blazing trails i don't know how many meetings ended it ended with wait well i guess we'll try it this way and see what happens because we didn't know right and, uh, but we had we had hired really smart people and uh, we did some really cool things. The second fascinating challenge was how do you talk about this, right? We knew we had something awesome from, especially from a development kind of deployment mechanism. Our lives were substantially easier. We were so excited and, and we're all engineers that started the company. So we wanted to talk about it, right? So we'd mm -hmm. go into the sales opportunity with a manufacturing executive and we'd be like, okay, so listen, this is great. Listen, this is so cool. Your data, will not be in your factory. It's going to travel over the internet and sit in a computer at a completely different location. Isn't that awesome? And it, the response was either a blank stare or profanity. There was lots of profanity. Like, There's no way you're choking, right? So so we had to, we realized, you know what, we got to approach this differently. Um, man, uh, manufacturers are tangible people, right? They make parts. They're used to heat and oil and graphite. And so we changed our approach and we really focused on our strengths um, as uh, the manufacturing software itself, because that's what we built. It was a very strong, incredible software. And so we, 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 we talked about that. Here's how we make you more efficient. Here's how we improve your bottom line. And then when they were hooked, we were like, oh, by the way, it's data's over here. So um, for many years, we really downplayed that cloud aspect. But now, you know, we can yell it from the mountain and talk about our expertise and experience because we've been doing it for so long. I, I got to say, it's probably one of those areas where it's an all ships rise with the tide scenario right. for a while is like Salesforce comes into play and these other companies that yep. start putting things in the cloud. It's like, OK, good. We're not actually the only people doing this. It, be, it right. can become something that manufacturers aren't afraid of. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I love that brief little history lesson. Fun story there. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to shift to that that second question I asked you around smart manufacturing. There's a reason I asked you that, and that's because Plex recently released a smart manufacturing report. Um, and anyone that's listening, I'm going to have a link to, to link up to that very easily. But one of the biggest takeaways from that report 
is the acceleration of smart manufacturing adoption having grown 50% year over year. Right. But we, we talk about buzzwords, right? What does it mean for smart manufacturing adoption to grow 50% year over year? So I think it means, you know, last year uh, in response to that question, you know, 40% of our respondents said they had adopted some component of smart manufacturing. They were using some technology associated with smart manufacturing or industry 4.0. But this year there was a full 60% that had done so. So that's a 50% jump over last year. And that's a significant jump, especially compared to the years before where it was, you know, it was going up, but then it just kind of jumped up significantly. And that kind of spurs the question of why, right? And I think the obvious answer is, is COVID-19. The, the pandemic exposed problems in manufacturing that, to be honest, we've been talking about for years. I recall several pre-pandemic conversations with our customers in various settings, like a user conference or our customer advisory board. And we were already discussing how to make the supply chain more resilient or worrying about labor shortages because of the pending retirement. The average age of the manufacturing worker was, was creeping up. And suddenly, bam, and here we are with all these problems exposed and no solutions because things change so quickly. So, and of course, I'm sure you recall there was this initial optimism, right? It's a, you know, we'll just wait this out. It's only gonna last a few months and then we'll be back to normal. Well, it's over two years now um, and it's not normal uh, yet, unless you think like me, this is probably the new normal. And suddenly everyone realizes I need to do something. These problems aren't gonna solve themselves. And, and basically one of the few tools left in the toolbox is technology. And so, so many of our customers and manufacturers have, have turned to, you know, technology and industry 4.0 and automation to try to address those challenges and solve those problems that are, are here for the long term. You know, one, another thing the report highlights is the importance of like fully integrated teams, right? And I've, I've heard this before on the show. I've heard the importance of um, bringing different groups together that might not have traditionally worked together, IT, OT, you name it, right? You know, how do you successfully successfully form a fully in integrated team? Because I feel like the human element is often one of the hardest parts about smart manufacturing. Oh, it sure is. You know, it's, and here's the thing. You don't just wake up one day and say, okay, today we're going to form a fully integrated, functioning and healthy team for the first time ever. It's just, it doesn't work. It's got to be part of your culture, right? So for instance, if your culture is like a top down where edicts come down from on high and everyone toes the line, suddenly giving a team autonomy to make a decision, it's not going to go well. Everyone's not going to know what to do. They're afraid to stick their neck out. Or maybe if your culture is a little more political, um, you're going to have a hard time. I've heard of factories and maybe even might've been involved in one once where when one shift left the floor, they purposely screwed up the dials and the settings on the machines forcing the next shift to start from scratch to try to get an optimum run. And that's what happens when you pit shifts and people against each other. You talk about cutting your, off your nose to spite your face, right? So three things come to mind just real quickly. One is you have to start building that culture of collaboration right now. And this is a cool thing because sometimes people say, how do I start my digitization journey? How do I start that transformation? I've got to get budget and, and figure out what technology to use. And, and that's going to take a long time. Like, yes, it is going to take a long time. But right now, you are making decisions every day. So you can start building team collaboration right now. You can start practicing it right now because you're going to need it. I remember at the forging company, one of the cool things we did was every single person in the company, from the president to the engineers to the workers, all wore the same uniform. They wore the uniform that they wore out in the plant. And so when you gathered around a, a, a table to, to bang out a decision, everyone felt like they were equal at that table. And so those are some of the, the practical things you've got to think like that. How do I make people feel part of this process, right? 
Um, the second thing you kind of mentioned this include all the stakeholders, um, I, uh, IT, OT, production, quality, maintenance, whoever is involved, they've got to be part of that. And there's a tendency to let IT lead these things because um, they're used to making technology decisions. You've got to kind of push back on that a little bit and make sure they include uh, people because, you know, IT engineers like myself, are like, oh, we know everything. We don't need you. Um, but we've got to break through that that mindset. And the last thing real, real quickly is just is communicate over and over and over. Just when you think you've communicated enough, you do it again. And then the second part of communication is listening. It's got to be a two-way street. You've got to iterate the communication, the listening, the communication, the listening, and bring those things together. So that's the start on building a team, uh, a fully functioning, uh, integrated team. Three great bullets. I, I like that story about everyone in the forging company, from the president, the folks on the floor wearing the same thing. Obviously, the importance of communication, particularly the listening aspect. Um, we're you know we're we're covering some ground here, and and the next part's going to be a bit of a, a smorgasbord because as, as I understand it, you have some pretty unique insights as to what's next in manufacturing. So mm -hmm. I've got a few darts to throw here. Oh, I have a okay. few questions around this. So you know, my first question is, what technologies that were once dismissed as hype are now real? Um, all of them. <laughs> so I mean, seriously, when you look at the state of uh, smart manufacturing report that you just referenced, all the technologies that are covered in that report have some respondents saying, we're using this, this is awesome. And others are like, no, this is totally overhyped, right? So there's always a continuum of, of, of all those technologies. But if I was gonna pull out a couple specifics, um, obviously, and this, is, this seems kind of, uh, ancient because we're so used to it now, but the cloud, right? And I've already talked about the huge skepticism that was involved when the cloud first came about. And, uh, you know, we're kind of over that now, but that that really was was hype when it first came out. Um, I think 3D printing, um, not the concept itself, because additive printing has been around for a while, since the 70s, and it's kind of been accepted. But I think the thing that was hype and that people didn't believe was the fact that you might be able to print mission critical parts that were used in final products, not just prototyping. So um, recently I, I was reading GE, well, it's been a while now, a couple of years, but they print fuel nozzles that are used in their LEAP jet engine that's put in the Boeing 737 and the Airbus 320 planes. So think about that for a minute. We are printing fuel nozzles that are used in our jets. I don't, I don't know, does that freak you out? It kind of freaks me out, but I think that's, those are kind of, those are one of the things that um, I think people didn't expect to happen was to be able to, to advance that technology to that level. Um, and maybe a third thing would be augmented reality and wearable devices. I'm not sure quite yet that I would call them real yet, but I think there's been enough valid implementations that are happening out in the wild that it can be moved out of the hype bucket. And I think we'll get there with that. But that's uh, that's one that had a lot of, you remember when Google Glass came out and everyone was like, oh, this is the future. And then everyone was like, oh, I hate Google Glass. Those people are weird if you wear those. And so we've gone through this this uh, up and down with that. And I think we're now starting to come back around and say, hey, this is valid technology that can actually um, find a place. And, and it's interesting, just to wrap this up and maybe drive this point home, most or at least many of the technologies that we talk about in smart manufacturing or industry 4.0, they've been around for a long time. And uh, I think it's something, sometimes we think that these are all like brand new, they just appeared like a big bang, um, but they've been, been around for a while and, and we're just now figuring out how to connect them. Yeah, good way to describe it. There's an evolution to all of these, right? I think right. those were great examples. I, I feel like I remember seeing Google Glass around like South by Southwest for two years, and then that was it, right? Kind of disappeared. Yep. And and you're right. I think we're starting to see more of those applications come in. We've, I mean, we've actually talked about 3D printing specifically on the show a couple times. So right. no doubt listeners out here um, should know that some of these things are becoming real. 
one topic we have not talked as much about on the show, and there's another one I'm gonna, a, a specific uh, technology that I think many people still dismiss as hype is blockchain. What's mm. the role of blockchain in manufacturing according to the world of Jerry? <laughs> so I, I'm not going to dismiss it as hype. I'm just going to say that the role is more like a future role or potential role. I think right now blockchain is squarely in the in the hype category, but I think the potential is there. Uh, whether it becomes viable or not is still a question. So blockchain is basically, for the listeners who don't know, a distributed digital general ledger where transactions are recorded, right? So each transaction is a block and that block is connected to the previous block forming a chain. So if I make a part on a machine, I record that transaction. I made part A on this date and time with this user and this job and I store that in a block. Then if I have, then if a forklift moves that part to a different location, I record that in a block and stick it on the first one. And so I have this transaction, uh, this chain of blocks. So now blow that up and imagine not just a single factory, but all contributors in a supply chain are using that same mechanism, that same blockchain. So every transaction from every participant, from the mining company pulling the ore out of the ground to that finished engine bolt that the OEM sticks in their new car is recorded on that blockchain. It's a single open accessible general ledger. And that's incredibly powerful, right? The traceability, imagine trying to find a, a to, to go back if you have a recall or you have some bad steel, you can, it's all there. It's just incredibly powerful, but there's two problems. One, it's distributed, right? No one is in control. People don't like not being in control. I want control of my stuff. So that's a hard barrier to get over. And the second thing is it's open. It's transparent. Everyone can see what you did on your part. Everyone can see it, which is the power of it, but also the scary part of it, right? And so I think the potential is huge, but it's really risky for any one entity to step out. And, and my personal feeling is it's gonna take um, like one of the OEMs to start throwing their weight around. Uh, kind of like Walmart has done with food and their supply chain. I think one of the OEMs in the automotive or manufacturing industry is going to have to start kind of pushing this in, in order for it to start to be adopted and, and taken seriously. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. Are you looking for the biggest events in the automation industry? If you are, you're going to want to hear about today's sponsor, A3, the Association for Advancing Automation. A3 is the leading global automation trade association of the robotics, machine vision, motion control, and AI industries. They also throw some of the best events in the automation and manufacturing space. And for me, they're the source of some of the best connections I've made in the manufacturing industry. You might not realize this, but throughout the years, we've featured over 10 different A3 partners on this podcast. Now, whether we're talking about their annual business form or their marquee event, the Automate Show, A3's events are the spot for building partnerships, exploring new technologies, and getting a pulse on the industry. If you're listening to this episode before June 2022, make sure to check out Automate 2022 taking place in Detroit, Michigan, June 6th through 9th. I, for one, will definitely be there. Head to automateshow.com for more information and to register for free today. And you can always learn what A3 has going on by visiting automate.org. And now, back to today's episode. Well, it goes back to your initial comment, right? Everything has to start as hype, really. I almost look right. at that as a requirement now. It's got to start as hype. And then you can see, I mean, everything you described there was really, and this is, I know some people think it's a buzzword, but digital threat, right? Seeing right. what goes on beyond the four walls of the factory. Exactly. So. 
excellent Very description cool. of it. I think really relevant to manufacturing. Last question in this little little uh, lightning round that we've had <laughs> here is AI is another mm. big uh, big thing that people have dismissed as hype. Maybe some people still think it's hype. You know, you told me though that the term AI was first penned in 1965. So why yeah. is A front and center now? That's a great question, right? So uh, in 1965, there was a gathering of the greatest minds in computer science at the time at Dartmouth University. And they were they, they met to discuss how machines could simulate intelligence. And someone penned the term artificial intelligence. So um, uh, the discipline has been uh, growing ever since then. I've always been fascinated with AI. In fact, my senior thesis for my computer science degree was a paper on artificial intelligence. So this is a, this is a technology that, that I've been following and I really love. But here's the thing. That, that you have to know about AI. In order for it to work well, it requires two things. A huge amount of data that it can learn from and a huge amount of computing power to crunch through all that data. And up until recently, only like large corporations or the government or universities could afford the resources to really use AI in any, any, any form of useful uh, usefulness. But now with the cloud, guess what? We've got a platform on which we can store a ton of data and analyze it with nearly unlimited computing power for a fraction of the cost because of economies of scale. So now the ability to do AI at scale is available to just about everyone. It's a complete game changer. And it's just in time. Um, one of the most often repeated questions I get, I just I was speaking a, on a panel uh, last week and I got the same exact question. And it was from a manufacturer and he said, okay, I'm doing, I'm putting in these, these, these industry 4.0 technologies like everyone says I should, and I'm getting so much data I have no idea what to do. I have no idea where to look or even how to how to get my arms around this data. And it's such a valid concern because we're collecting so much data now. There's no way, in my opinion, for any one person or any single company even to get their arms around that and accurately and quickly analyze that data. Um, in my opinion, um, artificial intelligence or machine learning, it's the only way to really tame that beast, right? It's like getting 100,000 interns to analyze all that data um, almost for free. And the cool thing is with the AI services that are available now that are so smart and easy to use, most companies can take advantage of that and do most of what they need without having to hire a data scientist. So it's come a long way, but in my opinion, it's the cloud and the convergence of that data and compute capabilities that has brought AI to the forefront. And uh, it's now, it's now it's my, in my opinion, it's, it's the leading um, uh, technology as far as value that we are working with right now. This has been just as value valuable in terms of a history lesson, as well as bringing these things down to earth in terms of where they play now. So right. no, this is, thanks for sticking with us through what I'll call the lightning round. I've never done a lightning <laughs> round on the show first, but I feel like that boom, boom, boom of hot tech topics uh, warrants that, yep. you know, we're, we're going to shift gears again to the, the people aspect of smart manufacturing. This is really kind of more of a leadership topic at this point. Um, right. One other thing that jumped out in the report was that technology paralysis has become an issue uh, for the first time. In your report, 25% of respondents said this was an issue. So what characteristics do you notice in oh. leaders who actually take action versus ones that are just kicking the tires? So, you know, I've rubbed shoulders with, with a ton of leaders in my career. I would say one of the overriding characteristics that I have seen is just a confidence. They're sure of themselves. They don't mind taking chances. There's a, a, a high risk, high reward. And there's also, I, I see a bit of an adrenaline rush when they take action, right? They're entrepreneurs. They're not satisfied with the status quo. They get bored easily. Uh, they want things to change. In fact, to be honest, I think they don't mind a little bit of chaos, like in, in, injecting that because change doesn't happen when you're comfortable. 
And so mm -hmm. making people a little uncomfortable and forcing that change is something that I've seen um, action-oriented leaders do. And here's the interesting thing. I, I've thought a lot um, in the context of this kind of question. Is this, is this something that can be learned or is it in, I, or, or not? Or, or how do you approach this? Because, you know, I think some of it can be learned. But I do think some of it's ingrained in your your personality type, at least mm. to the extent where it comes more naturally for some. Because some people are action oriented, some people are analytical oriented. I myself, I'm the latter. I take my time, I explore all the options, and I have a tendency, if I'm not careful, to suffer from that paralysis. I, I've even seen it playing video games with my son. He charges into a room, guns blazing, right? I creep into the room, I check all the bad guys, <laughs> I determine what weapons I have, and I do a cross-reference analysis against their armor, then I choose a weapon, you know, he's already in the middle. So, and, and so I have to be careful, I have to push myself. And this is the key, I have to understand when my analysis has reached the point of diminishing returns. That's the point. It's, I think um, analysis-oriented people don't aren't able to to uh, mark that moment, and they keep analyzing. And so I've I've been forced to learn that. So I think there's a, an element of being able to learn that um, and and make a choice. Um, you know, fish or cut bait, or any other similar saying you might be familiar with. Uh, I think it's it's important to 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 adopt that for for those of us who maybe uh, don't have that uh, personality trait uh, right at the forefront. I think experience helps. I'm having a mentor, that engineer mm -hmm. who hired me uh, that I told you about that kind of started this whole thing. His name was Rob. He was incredible at this. He was an incredible leader, um, taking action, entrepreneur. I learned so much from him. I can't emphasize that enough, finding a mentor. Um, and I want to bring this all around maybe um, to a point you talked about earlier about uh, teams. It's so important that your teams have both types, right? If you've got action-oriented people, um, no one's thinking about implications. Like, oh, didn't know that would happen. Well, that's because no one was thinking about what would happen when you made that choice, right? But if everyone's analysis oriented, you'll have great spreadsheets, but you won't have any results. So you need both in order to 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 uh, to go back to that question about a fully uh, integrated team. You need both kinds of people there to make that team successful. I love that you're weaving this all together, right? Like I think about a lot of those topics in uh, in the context of like co-founders of companies, right? Not everyone needs, not, well, it's actually detrimental for everyone to have the same skill right. set, right? You got to right. have different people, analytical, action-oriented. Yep. That video game analogy was top-notch <laughs> too, by the way. I think a lot of people can, uh, I know we've got some gamers that right. listen to this right. show. And uh, I, I pulled up my sideboard notes because I almost forgot something as I was going through this, but another topic in this area ESG, which I, I got an acronym check myself, right? Environmental sustainability and governance. Did I get that right? Sustainable or social. Yeah. Sustainability is kind of the word we use for the, for the whole thing. No, you're right. Social sustainability. There, it's, there are a lot of buzzwords we could throw right. out there, but uh, I just wanted to make sure I had the definition there, but you know, you're, you're a Michigan guy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're there in like the heart of, you know, the industrial world, right? Oh, and yeah. I'm curious, kind of another world, according to Jerry, when did you start seeing the shift in industry where leaders realized you could both be profitable and sustainable? So, you know, I actually first saw this in the other, in the opposite context, you know, growing up here in Southeast Michigan, the heart of the automotive industry, my grandparents were born and raised in Flint. My dad was born and raised in Flint. My wife and I lived in Flint when we were first married. And witnessing the turmoil between the automotive OEMs and the management and the workers and the unions, it was awful. It was heartbreaking to see the, the anger and the tension. And it was constant. And, and in my opinion, it was a, a key factor in destroying Flint and Detroit and, and putting them where they are and having to come back. And, and it, it came from this mindset on both sides. You can value profits or people 
but not both. And, and it felt so misguided to me. And that's one of the things that we really, uh, when we, at the, at the forging company, and then we started Plex, we strive so hard to not be that because we knew differently. I just inherently, I knew if I treat someone well and give them autonomy and choice and good pay and, and um, the ability to make decisions on how they work and, and what they're working on, I can't imagine that they're not going to repay that in, in good work and loyalty and, and doing the right thing. So that's how kind of all that started. Um, but as far as the industry as a whole, it's been a it's been a gradual process watching that kind of play out. I think I really noticed a big change um, this year for the most part in, um, in January. I went to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. I try to go every year, even though it's consumer. Um, all those technologies eventually find their way into business. And so I get a good, uh, good insight into what technologies are coming. And for the last many years, um, ESG has been a growing theme, but this year it's just like someone pushed it over the edge. Everything was was environmental. Everything was social sustainability, um, uh, and and it was just it hit me that we are now in a new a new era. Um, you know, realizing that ESG is now becoming a significant consumer concern. You you see companies pivoting to take advantage of that, and the cynical side of you might be like, well, they're just being selfish because they're doing it. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They just want to make a buck. And I'm like, well. Is that bad? I guess consumer pressure for forcing companies to take stock of their sustainability posture. I don't think that's that's bad at all. Um, but the cool thing is the uh, that state of smart manufacturing report. It, it shows that there's a whole slew of companies now who are doing this because it's the right thing to do. They want to tackle social inequalities. They want to address potential environmental issues. And they have already found out what I think we already knew and proved that it's possible to be ethical in your dealings with people in the environment and still make a healthy profit. And I would argue it might even be required going forward. Love that description. I like that you go to the Consumer Electronics Show as well oh, to figure out, hey, I what's coming coming to me? Yeah, I need, I need to make my trip uh, to Vegas at some point to see that. That yep. sounds like a show unlike any other. I'm it's sure amazing. there's a lot of hype at that show if I had oh, to take a guess. Is. It's amazing. <laughs> I come back every year from that and I take pictures of the technologies and I put them on our internal um, our internal hub website for our users and I'll show pictures and I'll say, okay, you guess what this is, right? And then everyone will try to weigh in on what they think it does and then I'll tell them it's a, it's a lot of fun. Awesome stuff. I'm going to move off of the report. We're going to pull from a couple of your other experiences as well as as we get here in kind of the final throws of the interview. You know, one thing that came to mind right before we started recording today was, you know, we did an episode with Fix Software's CEO back in episode 77. And that was all about, you know, how do you lead a team through an acquisition, right? We've talked a lot about people today. And one of the things about Plex is you've also recently been acquired by Rockwell Automation. So I'm curious, how how what have you done? This is kind of just like a, a, a shortened version of that episode, really. I have to ask you, what's it been like leading the team through this experience as well for a company with a lot of history that's now part of a, a larger organization? So I think the ability to lead through something like that starts a long time before it. Your team has to trust you. And that only happens through repetitive, um, specific situations where you show yourself to be trustworthy. And so then when you go through a, a, a situation as big as we did last summer, they're going to look to you and to other leaders and take their cues from you and they're going to trust you. So if you've been able to build that trust, then you you can lead with honesty and integrity through that situation. Because to be honest, we all know this when you get acquired, um, you've all heard horror stories of being acquired and how bad that's gone. And then, you know, more rare is um, stories uh, that happen 
um, where it had a good result. Uh, in our case, this was really, really fortunate for us because Rockwell is an awesome company. They are just terrific and they're a manufacturing company like we are. They're in the Midwest, uh, headquartered in the Mid Midwest like we are. So it was a little easier in that regard because I think the initial fear we were able to get through by saying, hey, these, these guys are us. They're just on, more on the hardware side. We're more on the software side, but this is us, right? And so that helped a lot. Um, but then I think after the initial announcement, there's still that, that, that nervousness. I don't want to say fear, but that concern. Okay, I've heard you and everyone's saying the right things, but is it going to actually happen like you say? And in that case, I think the, the important thing is just um, everyone keep doing what you're doing. They, they acquired us because we did some really awesome work and they love us or they wouldn't have paid this amount of money to, to acquire us. So let's keep doing that. And if we keep doing that, uh, I am confident that only good things are going to happen to us. And that's, that's what's happened so far. And that's what Rockwell has shown. And, and so it's been, it's been quite a surreal uh, and exciting journey so far and uh, nine months since then. Love hearing that. One of the things that I feel like I'm, I'm lucky when it comes to running this podcast is I get to hear some similar themes from the leaders to jump on this show and your answer around, hey, you build trust long before the acquisition right. takes place, long before you leave the role, long before the company gets bought, sold, whatever it is, right? And right. that's a, a theme we keep hearing more and more on this. So thank yeah. you for giving us another example that just hammers that home. It's a long-term process and it's not like it starts today that the day that acquisition goes right. through. I'm going to flip this a little bit to something completely different from acquisitions. Right. You're a competitive racquetball player, correct? Uh, yes, I am. I love so it. So I, I, I love drawing parallels between sports and leadership and career management and things like that, right? You know, how is being a competitive racquetball player? Um, by the way, I'm a comp I, I played racquetball in high school as well. So I love oh, that awesome. sport, even though it might not be on the, you know, the net, the, the sport everyone knows about, right? Right, right. How has racquetball helped you in your career? So... You know, I'd like to say, well, it taught me to walk into a meeting with authority and power and just knock everyone over with my confidence and poise. Um, and I don't think it's been that um, overt, right? It's been more subtle. There has been some confidence coming as with my success on the racquetball court, um, translating to just general success. But the, the flip side is, has worked as well. You know, success in my career and with Plex has also given me confidence in other places like on the racquetball court. So they have they've kind of fed off each other in that regard. I think the other thing is, and this might be just too general, but for me, it's just provided a huge release. You know, we work in high stress environments, right? And lots of stress and pressure at times. And I think everyone needs that healthy physical activity to be well-rounded. Um, and if you find yourself saying, well, I don't have time, then I suggest you might need it even more than you think, right? And, and I enjoy running. I enjoy riding my bike, but there is nothing like smacking that ball as hard as you can. It's very cathartic. It feels really good just as long as you don't, you know, hit your opponent. That's very painful. Um, but I, I love hitting the ball and, and afterward going to the court. And um, and to me, it's about balance, right? Your intellectual and your physical and emotional, and for me, spiritual life must be prioritized in the right order um, and attended to accordingly, or you're, or you're not going to be content in whatever you're doing. Yeah, I uh, the the satisfaction of just like hitting that ball perfectly and watching it basically roll when you hit the yep. bottom of the wall just right. Oh man, yep. I I need to get back on the racquetball court. I uh, I you know, I went running this morning. I almost didn't, but I'm like, you know what? The rest yep. of the day is going to be way better if I do so. Exactly. Well, come on out. I'll take yeah. you to the court. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you would be the right. Per I, I will probably get beaten very very badly. <laughs> I have right. not picked up the racket in uh, in a while, so go easy on me. All but, right. Uh, well. 
Um, well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. I, the, the Star Wars poster is on the wall behind you in every conversation I have with you, Jerry. So, you know, I, I was going to ask you, and you can still a- answer this if you want, you know, what's your biggest technical beef with Star Wars, right? We talk we talked a lot about technology today. But the real question I want to ask you is, is a kind of a variation on how I end most of my interviews. What's something you wish more people would ask you about Star Wars as an avid Star Wars fan? I, I, I thought about this for a while. I... I would want them to ask me what happened to George Lucas because I got so many thoughts on that, right? He wrote the most <laughs> awesome space trilogy of all time. And then he followed it up with three movies that were just kind of dismal, to be honest with you. And here's the thing. He's he's even said that Jar Jar Binks is one of his favorite characters in the entire Star Wars universe. And I'm like, what grown adult thinks that, right? Although I have to be honest, I, maybe he's not as foolish as I think uh, several years ago. My kids were all in elementary, middle school, and and the topic of Star Wars came up. The first, you know, the, the next three movies had come out, and I was pontificating on the insufferable nature of Jar Jar Binks, and I was going on and on, and then I realized all the kids were just staring at me, and and one brave child said, um, "I love Jar Jar," and another said, "Yeah, he's my favorite," and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" And I pulled the car over, and I, I made them all get out, uh, completely failed as a parent, but. Uh, so apparently there's a there's a draw with the younger kids that Jar Jar had that I didn't. But I've always well, what was he thinking with that? And so I'm not sure what happened to George Lucas, but of course he doesn't have to worry about anything these days. So I guess it's okay for him. This is true. This is true. Well, hey, everything from smart manufacturing to pop culture, we covered a lot of ground today. Yeah. Is there anything that didn't come up, or one thing you want to hammer home before we call it quits for the day? I, th- I think the only thing I would say is this is what I tell. Um, you know, tell manufacturers when it comes to to smart manufacturing, everyone's nervous that they're behind. Everyone's nervous that they that they they've missed the boat or or um, not quite sure how to get started. And I always tell them, you know what, start where you are right now. It's okay. Don't don't freak out. You are you are in a good spot. It's not hard to get started. Pick one 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 area where you're having um, uh, efficiency problems or or a specific issue or a problem and, and apply some technology to solve that problem and get started on your journey. Don't wait. Don't wait anymore. You can do this. Great actionable advice to wrap things up. For everyone listening today, I will have links to the Smart Manufacturing Report, ways to connect with Jerry. All that will be over at the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And Jerry, just want to say thanks so much for jumping on today's show. This was a blast. Hey, thanks for listening, and a big thanks to Jerry and the whole Plex team for making this episode possible. Not going to lie, this has been one of my recent favorite episodes. You could probably tell we both had a lot of fun with that interview. And if you want to have more fun as well or you want to learn more, head to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 92, or you can check out that State of Smart Manufacturing report that we've referenced at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Plex. That'll take you straight there. As we get to the end of today's episode, I want to thank the sponsor of our show, the Association for Advancing Automation. And in one month, on June 6th through 9th, 2022, their big Automate show is taking place in Detroit, Michigan. You can learn more about that by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash automate2022. And more importantly, you can register for free. This is going to be one of the biggest events of the year. If you're in the automation space, you don't want to miss it. I will be there covering the event in full. I hope to see you there as well. Again, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash automate2022 to register for free today. 
Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review depending on what platform you listen to. If you're on iTunes, you can do that rating and review. If you're on Spotify, you can just do a little five-star rating. It's as simple as a click of the button. Anyway, it helps us get the show on the map, getting it into more people's ears. The show has been growing lately, and we hope it continues to grow even more. Your rating and reviews help a ton. It also helps us decide what topics we're going to feature on the show. So if you listen on Spotify, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. If you listen on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. I don't know why I give you those links every week because, quite frankly, you know how to get there if you're listening on the platform. Just hit that five-star button, folks. Come on, do us a solid. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.